Today, I'm going to piggyback on our, my last sermon from last week. If you didn't watch it, you can go on uh, the website and check it out. But I uh, got a lot of good feedback about it, so I'm going to keep going at it, all right? So let's go. Now, what does the Lord ask of us? That was the question we asked last week. In a complex and complicated world, what does the Lord ask of us? You know, like we talked about last week, we looked at Deuteronomy 10 and we looked at Psalm 36 about what happens when as a society we begin to lose the awe, the fear of the Lord. And we're seeing how that's taking place, right? We talked about that. And we know that we, we looked at how we were supposed to respond and how we're supposed to help our friends continue to grow in love for the Lord, grow in fear of the Lord, to be willingness to be his servant and to walk in his ways. And so what we see is today we're going to continue this theme. But I want to start here. Have you ever noticed, and this might be a Midwest thing, but when you have somebody that you don't really know or that you like mildly are acquainted with, that you always find yourself talking about the weather. You ever notice that? Like it's like a thing, like it's our go-to security blanket is we're going to talk about the weather. And I thought maybe it was a Midwest thing, but apparently it's everyone. And so what I see is that uh, it, it's like, maybe it's like this socially awkward thing, but we say things like, hey, hope you stay dry, or hey, make sure you get out and enjoy the sun, or like right now, like, hey, I know we're on day 460th of not, you know, experiencing the sun, so I hope that you enjoy that little bit that we're going to get, I think, tomorrow. But it's June, and I was just talking that we're like three weeks away from July 4th, and it does not feel like July 4th out there. But we talk about the weather. You know, the interesting thing is that there's a fascinating thing about you West Coast people. And the fascinating thing about you West Coast people, I'm considering my, I am a West Coast person now, but I grew up in the Midwest. You all are terrified of tornadoes. You all are terrified of tornadoes. It's crazy, you know? You can't believe that, we, that people live in a place where tornadoes occur. I see a lot of shaking heads out in the audience. But I grew up my whole life as part of Tornado Alley, and I actually love tornadoes. And you guys are actually weird because you all aren't scared of earthquakes. Thank you, Mama. You grew up with tornadoes. Earthquakes are way, way, way scarier than tornadoes. I'm just going to let, as I understand it, I've never experienced an earthquake. But as I understand it, the earth just starts shaking and all of us are doomed. And, uh, and there's no hope for any of us. And that's the fear for me, right? I don't know what's going on. But here's the thing. I, when the tornado alarm went off when I was a, like a teenager around my car, my mom hated it. I hopped in my car and I went storm chasing. And to this day, I still storm chase. Marty can be a, uh, uh, he, he knows that I do this. My dream vacation is, is the, Meg hates this, but get, like, if the church wants to give me a gift, a flight to Kansas or Nebraska to spend a week chasing tornadoes. I love them. A matter of fact, here's proof. I just want to show you. This is me FaceTiming my, my buddy. I have a buddy who lives in the middle of nowhere, Lawton, Oklahoma. And whenever there's a tornado warning, he FaceTimes me. I get on the radar, and he goes out and looks for me. He's trying to chase a storm for me. I'm putting my friend's life in danger just for my excitement. But I just want to show proof. Now, the interesting thing is that this is actually biblical, but not how I want it to be biblical. Read it here. Luke 12, 54 through 57. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. He says, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth in the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourself what is right? Jesus is saying that people have always been about the weather. They've always been able to read the signs of changing weather. Throughout time, people must have been like we are in 2022. He's saying that you have the ability to look at clouds in the west and see if rain's coming. For us, we don't have to look. We know it's coming. But we might look at the Puget Sound. For them, it, might be the, it would be the Mediterranean. And they're able to look, even way back then before radar and everything, they were able to look and they're saying, rain is coming. They were able to interpret these things. But he said, if you look at, they said, as you look, all of us are great at determining and discerning meteorological change, but we don't understand the time and the present time that we are in. So we see this. Now, the word here for time is actually really interesting. 
The Greek word here can be trans is translated not as like a moment, but as an opportunity that is presenting itself. Or that there is a season, a time that is about to change. Something is about to change. This Greek word here is the, is, is the present opportunity or that there's a time changing. And so what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is coming through him. He's saying that the times have changed on how God is going to work. This is very significant for us to understand. But most people will ignore the signs, it says. But Jesus is coming, and it signifies that they, there is a different time because Jesus is here. And so he's saying we're entering into a different season. There's a new opportunity that you have to be aware of. The kingdom of God is near, and salvation is near, is what he's saying. But there will be also be a time where it's too late, and the judgment of God will come for people. And so we're in that time. We're in the present time, like he's talking about, where Jesus' salvation is near. It's not too late. So the warning is clear for us. We must not delay, and we must carry out the mission. We must keep going on with the mission. In light of planet crazy, getting crazier, we talked about this, evil get, becoming good, good becoming evil. We've talked about this multiple times. We are still in that season. We're still in the season at this time that Jesus talked about when we call people back to Jesus, back to him who brings salvation and can redeem everything in your lives. We're in that time. So in light of the world that we're experiencing, it's important that this question comes up. So how do we deal with sin and call people to repentance? If the time is now, if the time is here, Jesus is saying we have to interpret the times well, it's important for us to understand how we do this. And there's some insights in here. Now, there's this great book called Fierce Conversations that I know like Marty pointed out to me. But Fierce Conversations is a, uh, a business book, but it's really interesting because it's mostly written for business leaders. But the premise of this book is this, that we as a society are moving away from the ability to have tough conversations. This is a thing. We're not having tough conversations. Inside the church, outside the church, everyone, right? But the problem is this, that, he, that the writer says, our work, our lives, and our relationships will succeed or fail based off of conversations. He's, she studied uh, uh, businesses, big businesses. She found the most successful businesses were able to have people have tough conversations rather than ignoring them. And so she said the key to success is to be able to have this ability to have fierce conversations. While no single conversation is guaranteed to transform a company or your life or your relationship, the amazing thing is, and we all know this, one relationship actually, or one conversation actually could change the life of somebody. And that's the, that's the significance of this, of this conversation. And we as believers, we are faced with people inside and outside the church where we are backing down from fierce conversations for a number of reasons. Number one, I just wrote down a bunch. Cancel culture is a real thing. I'm just gonna be completely honest. Cancel culture is a real thing. There is an opportunity that we are afraid that if we disagree with someone, it will just be over for us, right? That person, we're worried that if we address things in people, that they will just leave the relationship. That is a real thing right now. I, I don't wanna make light of it. And maybe some of us, I won't raise my hand, but I would if I was in the crowd. Since I'm preaching, I'm not. But I raise my hand on this. Our people pleaser. We're people pleasers, right? Amen. Now, I got a couple of hands. People pleasers, right? We, we, ha we, we have an inability to have tough conversations because they're tough conversations. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it, right? People pleasers have a tough time having tough conversations because they're tough conversations. Maybe it's because information travels like wildfire and we, we might be worried about getting a reputation of being that person, right? That's a, real, that's a real thing. Maybe we're worried about just how uncomfortable we'll feel in the, in the conversation because unfortunately, the book tells you, fierce conversations will be uncomfortable. It's a way to do it well. The book's actually, I would recommend it. There's a good way to have fierce conversations, but they will be uncomfortable and that's why we shy away from it. But if the book has merit, and I think it does, we actually see that the only way people see breakthrough in an area is when they have conversations. That's so key. 
So last week we talked about it. We're going into a society where we have to navigate a complex and a complicated world. So today we're going to look at a few places in the Bible and say, okay, if it's time for us to not just, uh, it's time for us to evaluate and judge the times that we are in, but how biblically are we to prepare ourselves for these conversations, these important conversations that are going to need to come up. Now, this section we're going to look at is Matthew 7. Now, this section, before we begin, there's a couple things that you have to know. There's a couple things that you have to remember, okay? Matthew 7. Two things that are really hard to get over. One, Jesus has a vision for us, right? Jesus has a vision for us to be in relationship in our lives and in our faith, right? Unfortunately, being in relationships is just part of the ballgame of being human. And then two... He then uses messed up, broken people to carry on his work. What are those two things if one plus two equals a bunch of messiness, right? Like those two things, that we are supposed to be in relationship together, in faith and in our lives, and then Jesus, God, chooses to use broken, messy people to have these tough conversations. We have to expect messiness. There is good news at the end of this message. Don't worry. You never feel this way, but it is just going to get messy. But it's important for us to understand as we look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is going to use this attention getting line, but then he's going to explore it longer. I'm only going to talk about one, but he uses parables to unpack what he says in this attention-getting line, okay? I'm only going to talk about one. I recommend you read Matthew 7 because it's fascinating when you read it. Please note that Jesus is not saying that we never have hard conversations. That's not what he's saying. He's going to say we actually need to have more hard conversations, but we need to make sure that our hearts are right and we are ready to really evaluate the situation. That's what he's saying. He's not saying just look past people's behaviors. He's not saying it's no big deal. People in our lives at times will not be following God. They will be living in sin or they'll have some moral or um, uh, character flaw that must be addressed. That That is a truth of the world. And we hold on to the word of God and to see what what we we really try to see what God intended for that person and for our world. And what we see is that Jesus is talking about something more here. He's talking about an attitude that is so destructive to ourselves and relationships in our lives when it's approached that way. We observe someone's behavior or someone's outward appearance, and we may become judgmental instead of looking at them as being a child of God who he cares so deeply about. And we might start to say, well, they're sinners, right? Well, they're evil. Well, they're X, Y, or Z. The fear is that this type of attitude could put us in a place where we believe that people are beyond redemption. I can, be, I can be guilty of that. It really is this fine line. It's this delicate line that we have to find. But it's critical for us to understand. Because, but Jesus is not saying that we don't evaluate people's lives, that we don't let people keep sinning, that we don't have hard conversations. That's not what he's saying. He's going to say there's a difference between discernment and wisdom and standing firm and just being judgmental. There's actually a difference, but we do this. We don't have judgmental hearts towards people, but we do hold people into account. In today's world, we will have to talk to people about character flaws, about sin, about repentance, about the junk in their lives. I hope that you tell me about my junk as well, even though I don't know that I have any. How did I get an amen in this section over here? Don't make eye contact to the left. This has always been complex, always been complex. But like we talked about last week, the world that we live in is making it even more complex, even more complicated. And so the good news, there is good news. Following the statement through the Bible, we get wisdom and guidance on how we are to have these tough conversations because they are. Now the Greek word here that he uses for judge is really has a wide meaning. It can mean a, a, a multiple things. It can mean to decide. 
There's two options and you have to judge and you have to decide what those options are. My family is currently going through that. We currently own three Russell Wilson jerseys and we are trying to decide if we donate them or we just burn them. <laughs> just joking, Russ. I love Russ. He's not going to listen to this, but it's a hard one for me as a Seahawks fan. He feel a little abandoned. But this is one way of looking at it, right? There's two options and we just have to make a decision. We have to judge. What's clear is that he's not saying to never use critical thinking or a, a moral compass at all. It's clearly not. He's not saying that we don't ever make moral judgments on what's good or what's evil or, or, or us and for us or others. But what we see is that in verse 2, he's saying that there's a way that we are to go about this. And clearly, there's a way that you, that you make these moral decisions. So the question is, how do we want to be judged? Because that's what it's saying. How do we want to be judged? Do we want to be judged on assumptions or false narratives that we have in people's minds based on something that we can't control? Because that happens as well. Think about it. Oftentimes, we jump to conclusions. And we all know this lane when people attribute ill motives to us and to our actions when they're just not there. It happens all the time. We can be quick to judge. And I'd venture to say most judgmental hearts come quickly. Right? It's our first reaction. And that's what Jesus, I think, is saying, is that it's not about the first reaction. But it's very clear that we want God to judge us how? Fairly. That's the most important. Like, fairly. Did I do something bad? Fairly. Let's do it. I think about this. I played basketball. I played in a lot of basketball tournaments. Uh, I wasn't very good. But and when I was 13 and 14, and a little bit still today, but when I was 13 and 14, I thought that I never did anything wrong. I don't know if anybody else gets that way. And there are two types of refs out there, two types of referees of a basketball game. And I had them both. And I remember the best ref that I can remember, he, he called a fair game. But the best part about him is that he would explain to the players what they did wrong. His heart was different. He wanted to keep the game fair. He wanted to make sure that everything was good. But his heart was that we would become better basketball players. That was his heart. So we could go over there and he would explain things to us. His intention was for us to get better. Now, there's other refs. And there was one ref in particular. That was the showboater ref. Umps, my 10-year-old my plays baseball. And there's show, showboater umps as well, which is amazing to me. It's a whole other mindset. But when you're refing 13 and 14-year-old basketball games, you do not need to do charging and traveling car calls like you are like on Circus Soleil, right? Like, you know, like that. And he would go crazy. Now, the amazing thing about this ref is that he probably called a fair game. But I remember vividly, I was actually not bad, but I went up to ask him about something. I probably wasn't the best intention. And the dude gave me a technical foul, right? That's, what, that's how we did it, right? The technical foul. It was amazing because he had other motives. He might have been thinking that he was holding up the standards. Both were holding up the standards of the game. But for him, he had other motives. He had other things that he needed to deal with. He was all about himself and not about the players. The first ref was holding up standards and holding up goals, but it was about making the basketball player better, where the other one made it about himself. And you see this. They both had the same intentions. And we do something wrong. We want to be judged fairly and with grace. And Jesus' focus was not for us to never call out something that is wrong. Rather, it's for us to have not have assumptions about overall who that person is, and for us not to be right in, and for us to be right in our hearts when we approach them. And we're going to see that as we continue. We can end up not making it about the sin, but we can make it about the person, and that's very, very important to understand. That's about calling out sin to make them better, and we take this posture of distancing ourselves from people. And it's us versus them, and we have the moral superior, superior kind of thought. But that's not what it's saying. He's saying that we, we do this. And here's the danger. We can place false narratives in our heads about our own righteousness too. So again, this is not saying that we don't ever say anything because we move, uh, we move on. He's going to give us wisdom on how then we are to act. So Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First off, I hate splinters. I, they're like stomach pain, sore throat, and splinters. That's my list. Like I, do ne I never want a splinter. I can't stand them. And it's one of those things where as a kid, isn't this funny? Like as a kid, getting shots and getting splinters are way worse than when you were an adult, right? You get a shot and you're like, man, why was I so scared of that? Same here when you get a splinter. But think about yourself as a kid and you getting a splinter. They are terrible. But we see Jesus is not, that Jesus is talking about not a speck or a splinter in your foot or in your hands. He's going all in. He's like, this is like a splinter in your eye. Ouch. Big time. Now keep in mind that we are all sinful and we all will have splinters in our eye. We put ourselves in the plank position, but sometimes we're the splinter position. Okay? So keep that in mind. Sometimes, or all of us at some time, will have splinters in our eyes. Sorry. Now keep in mind that sinfulness is this, that splinters are no joke, just like sin is no joke. Sometimes we can't, we don't put that into place. If you don't take out a splinter, I'd imagine especially one in your eye, it could get infected or it will get infected. It gets messy and it can lead to death, right? It can lead to death. And that's like what sin is. But Jesus is not, is, is going to turn us back to us. He paints this picture of a beam or like a telephone pole coming out our eyes, right? Out of another person's eyes, right? And it's obstructing our vision so much that you don't see clearly the speck in your brother or sister's eye to take it out. Now, it's important to note, the speck is there. Sometimes we can play this place where we, we mess it up, but they, there is legitimately a speck in that person's eye, all right? So there is sin that's happening over there, right? It's not part of our imagination. Their speck is there for the other person. There's some sin or moral failure or some character issue that needs to be resolved. So that's important. That is really happening. But for us, before we address it, before we bring it up, we have to do some work within ourselves is what he's saying. For some of us, and for many years, I read Matthew 7, this part, wrong. All right? Because I could read this passage and tie it to the first part, and I could say, well, there's my excuse. I can never get my plank out of my own eye. I don't need to worry about my brother's speck, right? It puts, it, it puts me as this place of not having to worry about it. I could say, how am I going to get the speck out? I got this plank. There's nothing I can do about it. So we could take this posture of ignoring sin or ignoring the specks in our, in our brother's and sister's eyes. But that's not what he's saying. We all need this. When we see a speck, we all need a whole bunch of prayer, a whole bunch of guidance from the Holy Spirit, repentance in ourselves, and healing on our end before we encounter people with specks in their eyes. That's what he's saying. We see that when we see someone who's living in sin, when we see them going away that is destructive, which we will see, all of us will have specks in our eyes, we discern and we understand what Jesus wants us to do in addressing it. And we repent of our own stuff. We prepare our own heart to go take care of this speck. And it's very important. We don't jump right in. He wants us to start with us first. You know, when I'm preparing to come up and speak, this is the process that I do. And this, this will help, I think, illuminate Matthew 7. When I come up and speak, I do this. I enter into prayer and I say, Lord... What truth or what word do you have for the body? That's what I got to do, right? I got to discern what, what's the word that's for the body. It's not to get creative. It's not to say, okay, how do we get the most people here? It's to say, actually, how do we make it as hard as possible and make it tough on you guys? No, we instead say, what is the word, the specific word that we have for you? Then we get into the Bible and we say, okay, now what is the truth that's coming out of this Bible, right? We, I start to build this sermon. Now, there's a third step that you may not think about, but it's vitally important to me preaching. And the third step is important is that I have to deal with myself. 
before I get up here and speak, I have to say, I have to make a judgment about myself and I have to say, how am I in this area? Because I'm up here preaching, I don't have it all together. There's, I just don't. Just gonna, if, you, if you want a church that has it all together, then good luck. <laughs> I say, what do I need to learn? What do I need to learn for myself? What is God trying to do in me first? What do I need to repent of? And where have I fallen short in this area? And as the Lord shows me that, I have, okay, this is the word that he has. This is the truth in the Bible that I got to bring up. Now I have to prep myself to say, okay, Lord, I repent of this. These are, this, this sermon is convicting for me. It is. It totally is. This is an area that I'm totally growing. I'm literally, I mean, I've, I've been in counseling for this kind of stuff, to have tough conversations. This is a wiring thing that comes from your parents. It comes from your background. It comes from who you are. Some people, it's really easy to have tough conversations. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes the people that's really easy to have tough conversations, they don't go as well, do they? But Jesus is saying, I'm pre preparing your heart. I got to prepare your heart to pray to this. And I think that then I'm ready to communicate what I believe Jesus has for each one of us. That's the key. So it's a similar model that Jesus is laying out for each one of us. Okay? So we see this. seems to be similar. We, when we see with our eyes, because we see with our eyes, that there is a speck in someone else's eye. Okay? So we see that. Sin. We have to then spend time in God's truth. We have to spend time in our own prayer life. We've got to spend in our own time saying, well, what do I need to repent of this to see clearly? How do I take this plank out so that I'm able to get a speck out of my brother or sister's eyes? I'm not, not going to address it. But Lord, I start with me first. And I have found over and over again that when I do that, the conversations go better. They just do. You know, there's like spiritual realities that you can't explain, but they're biblical truths. I don't know if it changes anything in the spiritual realm. I, I, don't, I should look up some biblical insights. But it seems to change the way that the conversation goes. Yeah. It's important for us to understand that we come, we call people to a higher level of living. We call out their sin, but we come at it differently when we take the plank out of our own eyes. It's not out of our own righteous living. That's the key. We understand where we all fell short. It's not out of our righteous living. It's not out of our superior thinking. It's not out of our greatness. It's out of this. It's out of our humbleness that we true to our sinners. And let me help you get that sin out of your lives. I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to be there for you. It's an amazing thing because we can do that with courage and boldness because we're called to that. And we can do that while standing firm on the things that God cares about. But we can do that with humbleness at the same time. And that's what I think he's, he's saying. That we can see clearly and discern clearly and speak clearly when we deal with ourselves. We have to deal with our sin, our pride, our self-worth, our insecurities, whatever it is, because they all get in the way. Those are all planks. Your self-worth, planks. When we're discerning, when we're evaluating situations of people's behaviors, making judgments, when we're trying to do what this, we have to do it without trying to be judgmental. That's, that's, the, that's the, delicate, the delicate thing that we have to walk. We need to be clear that we often make a lot of assumptions about a person with the spec. And we lessen the plank in our own. That's the narrative that can happen. We make a lot of assumptions. What Jesus is saying is it's not about condemning. It's about calling people to sin, out of sin to help them. That's what Jesus is saying. And we get addressing sin. All right. So a couple points on how we look at this. Looking at the Bible, a couple places. Number one, we must go beyond surface level. Like that is very clear that we have to go beyond surface level. We have to understand that passing judgment based solely on appearances or life circumstances is not what the Lord asked us to do. Yeah. John 7, verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. This is an important scripture for us to understand. I didn't read it all, but it's important in context. I'm just going to summarize it. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and the religious leaders come and they confront him. And they're like, Jesus, we're here to kill. No, they don't. Jesus knows that they're coming to kill him. They don't say it. They're a little bit more, a little bit more creative than that. But they know that Jesus knows that they're coming to kill him. And, he, and so Jesus talks about 
healing on the Sabbath because they know that's what they're mad about. And he says, whoa, you guys circumcise on the Sabbath. Do you not think God wants us to heal on the Sabbath? We see this, that we are not to judge according to what, how things first appear or just like these, these hard things. We, we must go beyond surface level to hear what the Lord has and is asking us to do. Proverbs 8, 13 tells us, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. It's foolish for us to jump to conclusions before listening and really investigating the facts. What we see is that the proverb is saying, often we want to get to the answer before listening. That's me, 100%. To make us a fool, but that makes us a fool because often we seek first to express our opinions more than resolving the situation or dealing with the sin. That's what he's saying. What the proverb is telling us that when we speak before we listen, it's about expressing our opinions rather than listening and trying to deal with the actual situation, yeah. to deal with the actual sin that's happening. And so we see we have an eagerness to place judgment right away. Often that will lead us to shame. We will be the ones that look stupid. But when we listen, when we hear, when we take the plank out, when we look at the speck, we're able to engage on a different level. This is not saying that we never speak up. Of course it is. We, ha we, we answer, the answer is that we, we of course do, but we have to listen first. Okay, number two, we have to have a grace mindset. Harsh, unforgiving judgment is not the stance that, that we are to take. We have a God who did this. He sent his son to die for us when, when we were all sinners. God shows this equation. This is what we do. This is the position that we are to take. With wisdom and discernment, we are supposed to deal with sin around us. Titus 3.2 tells us this. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Now the Greek word here, I'm going to butcher it, and Rabbi Brent's here and Marty's here, so I'm going to be careful, is blasphemia, blasphemy, blasphemia. It describes speaking against someone with the purpose of harming his or hers reputation. Oftentimes, we can do that when we're addressing sin. We think it's so bad that it's not just addressing the sin, but it's like we're going to take this person down with us or with, with, for their sin. That's, that's where you get really, really difficult. Believers, this is not how we're supposed to go in correction. The attitude and actions of each of us as Christians should not be to seek malicious gains, but rather to be gentle and humble and fully considerate to all. This includes addressing people's sins. Now, this is a judo move. I like to say this. Oftentimes, the Bible is full of these judo moves, like these things that God tells us to do and Jesus tells us to do or the writers of the New Testament or the Old Testament. They tell us these judo moves, these things that don't make sense. But when you do them, man, they surprise the heck out of everyone, right? The Bible is full of wisdom and direction and insights that are so countercultural that if we actually practice them, we would make progress. That's the thing. That's what's crazy, is that these are actual things. Now, this could be, and I've heard it multiple times, this verse could be, could be translated or interpreted, I'm sorry, not translated, interpreted as weakness. You might read these and be like, oh, I don't want to be considerate. I don't want to be gentle. I don't want to be patient, right? But there's more strength in this than anything else. This takes real strength to do this. To stand up against sin, against the schemes of Satan, against evil. We stand firm. We speak with authority. But nothing will throw people off more than when you come with gentleness and being humble. It's a judo move. You want to do it, judo move. Now hear me say this. If there was a fight to break out right here, right? If there was a fight that just broke out. First off, we have security. You don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to tell you who, but we got some security. <laughs> Now, if the security will stand up for me, yes, Trisha, it is you. 
We got some security. But if a fight broke out, of course, we evil's in front of you. That's you speak with authority and you and you take care of the situation. You call out sin. Like that's totally fine. But when we're walking, when we're dealing with someone with sin, when we were doing that, we're dealing with people that are in bondage, sometimes that we're dealing with. People who are in just bondage of sin. Not that like they sin once. I mean, this is like habitual and like they can't even see a way out of it. We walk alongside them, not holding back the truth, but ready to walk alongside them with truth and with gentleness and with humbleness and a considerate heart. Now let's look at Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman. Because I want there's two examples I want to point out of Jesus doing this, okay? Jesus is leaving Judea and he's going to Galilee. And G, you know this, Jewish customs would not be to go through Samaria. This was a no-go, but Jesus goes straight through Samaria. And so we look at this, John 4, uh, 7 through 10. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had been gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you ask for you, you ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Skip down to verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no hu husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you had five husbands, and the man you, ha you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Now there's so much insight into this conversation. So much insight into this conversation. Jesus is going to address sin, and he's going to do it with truth, okay? He's going to come gently and be available for a fierce conversation with this woman. Jesus turns the table on the, on the conversation, and Jesus speaks directly to her spiritual situation, to the, the sin in her life. And Jesus speaks directly. And he doesn't back down, but he doesn't shame her either. Right. Very important to see. He calls it out. He calls it out. She's living a life of serial monotony, monog monogamy, monotony. <laughs> Some of us are living a life of serial monotony. <laughs> but she is now on her sixth partner. Says that, right? So she's doing this. And she speaks directly. He speaks directly to the situation. And look what happens. The Samaritan woman, Phil, you're going to know this. <laughs> the Samaritan woman, she, she does this. She, uh, she, she changes it to something that doesn't really matter. <laughs> right? She deflects the conversation. She's like, it's getting too close to home. You call out the sin. I'm going to talk about this theological issue over here, right? Many of us do that in our own lives. But you see this in counseling sessions a lot where they start to say this. And so she replies, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And then she moves the conversation away from her. Whenever it gets, whenever it gets into your own sin, it's like, well, how do I change this conversation to kind of reflect it over there? And we see this. Many of us have these conversations. But Jesus stays in grace. He's going to answer this and talk, talk about the main point, but he's going to bring it back to her. So important for us to understand. She, he, Jesus shares the power that he has and how she can, can reach salvation for her sin. And interesting thing about the story, this is just an interesting thing about the story. The text doesn't say how she actually responds. It's like a Netflix show that goes into season two, but then like they don't ever bring out season two, and you're like, there's just a cliffhanger. We don't know how she responds. But what we see is that Jesus calls out sin. He righteously judges in the spiritual realm and he understands the situation. He has a conversation and he listens and he shares truth. And then he leaves the decision up to the woman. He leaves the decision. This is her decision. He leaves it up to her. He's, he presents the life-changing fact that he knows would change the woman's life. The sin that she's wrapped up in is complicated and complex. Here's the other thing. When people are in bondage, when people are in sin, when they have sin over and over again in their lives, we see this. 
that it's complicated and it's complex and there's a lot of untangling that has to happen. If you've ever had anybody walk alongside you during difficult situations, it's gonna get more painful before it gets better. You gotta untie things, there's knots upon knots and you pull this string and it knots this area and you pull this string and knots this area. So when we address sin, when we walk alongside, when we take out specks in our brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to walk alongside them and understand this. Point number three, we are not to do it out of self-righteousness. So important for us to understand. We are called to humility. James 4, uh, 6, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Amazingly in our own life, God gives us what? More grace than we deserve. That is a truism. That is a wonderful truth. That is like changes everything about the way that we interact with the world. What a wonderful truth. And we know that God also wants his people back. God desires his people back. If any of us were far away from God, I was far away from God, and you come back to God, you understand this truth so much that God desires people to come back to him. And we see that when we humbly come, Jesus wants us to show grace to everyone, that everyone needs to experience this grace. And we come humbly and we point out sins, but not self-righteously, we see progress. We see progress in people's lives. Now, I know what you're thinking because I feel the same way. In today's world, you may be coming with, maybe it's not today's world, maybe it's always been, you may come with a humble heart. You may deal with a plank in your own eye. You might like come gently and with patience and it's going to be interpreted as self-righteousness. That, that, is, that is probably true in some areas. I want to be very careful. I don't want to point this out like, this is the magic equation and it always works. That's them having to deal with it. That's them having to deal with it, okay? But for us, we have to know that we came with a humble heart and we have to prepare our heart, right? And not come self-righteously. Again, we're dealing with a mindset in society of not objective truth anymore, but personal truth, right? There's, there's, a, there's a thing that we have to walk when it comes to that. So that is not objective truth, it's personal truth. It's an uphill battle, but in the times that I think we are living in, we have to address sin inside and outside of the body. And generally the conversation goes better when you don't come with self-righteousness, but you come with a humble heart. And let's look at this with the example for Jesus. John 8, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay? But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. We don't know what he said. There's no reason to think about what he said. He writes something, right? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, talk a little bit about that, until only Jesus was left and the woman standing, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The Pharisees come with this woman who is caught in sin, right? But they don't come, they don't come with pure hearts. They come self-righteously. There's, there's alternative motives to what they're trying to do, right? Yeah. And so they come and they bring her and they're trying to trap Jesus. And they come not with hearts of mercy to the man of mercy. Very important to understand. That's how they're coming. He delivers this famous line that happens in this highly charged atmosphere. Again, they're about to stone this woman. Think about the elevation of adrenaline that's happening right now. And Jesus says this, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And when confronted with this conundrum, we see that one by one they begin to go. The oldest first. 
the spiritual mature who understand this truth. The, the, the oldest people, they understand what their lives are and what grace looks like, right? And they begin to leave. But what would you see that Jesus does? He speaks directly to the woman caught in adultery. And first he addresses it with a fierce conversation. He doesn't back away. Jesus presents mercy, but he doesn't end the conversation with, woman, with, a woman, uh, with a woman simply to say he does not condemn her. Of course, he know, we know that, but he instructs her to go and now leave her life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and telling the woman to repent and to live life differently. Jesus is doing what he does, calling sinners to repentance with grace, giving them a chance to start again, giving them a chance to change. And I wonder, in a church or our church, how would we respond? Are we able to keep that same balance? Because there seems to be a balance here is what I'm getting at. There seems to be a balance here. We're not to permit sin to continue. Instead, we are called to provide a culture in which we call out sin, but call people to another way of living, the new life. This is what Jesus is calling us to. For redeem, here's why I think it's so important. We'll have the band come on up. I believe, bad news first. In a world where we talked about last week, as a society, we are moving away from objective truth to simply personal truth. There can be a temptation to lean on the verse one and not think verse one, seven one, and not think through the whole narrative and to be afraid to help people through wisdom and discernment and prayer point out the sin in their life and gracefully walk alongside them. And it will continue to get harder. Unfortunately, it will continue to get harder. But the good news is, and I think there's, there, there's still our calling, is that remember in Romans, what was the gospel? The gospel was power. The gospel was power to transform people's lives. And the problem is, is that we back down and we don't believe any longer that the gospel has power. It doesn't transform people's lives. When the gospel becomes just something we present, or the gospel becomes something that we're not really living in our lives, when the gospel becomes something that it's not, which is, is, is the, ability, the, the power to bring salvation and redemption to everyone's life, we have to, we have to get back to it. Thank you. I have to get back to it because In our own lives, you know it. You have names that are going through your head. They're just falling away. If they knew the peace that they could have, if they knew the love that they could have, no matter what comes their way, if they could know what it means to go years of ruining your life and having it completely restored, that everything's forgiven, But like it said in Psalm 36, that we've become so self-centered that we can't even see our sin. We're just, we don't even see it. Like we're so self-centered that we don't even have this moral compass anymore. And that's what we're up against. And I think that the only way to fight it is through understanding that the gospel has power. And like we talked about with this last worship song, we say with our words these things, but in our heart, we don't necessarily believe them. So we believe that the gospel has power, but our life doesn't reflect that the gospel has power. Our conversations, our fierce conversations don't come like the gospel has power. Instead, they become weak and they become bland and they become, they lose their saltiness. And the problem with this is that when the church allows anything to happen, when anything goes, we lose our saltiness and we lose our mission. And we become ju judgmental and so self-righteous that we don't ever engage the world, we lose our saltiness and we lose our mission. Both lose their saltiness and their mission. The Lord desires us to be a church that's salty and on mission. And so we come and we say, we're going to call out sin. 
And we also come and we say, and we know that we're sinners. And so we say, this is how we present the gospel. I was you. I am you. And I'm going to walk alongside you. And so we have to have this thing. So come on and stand up. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, don't ever let us lose. Don't ever let us lose what it means that you are a good, good father. I think about that all the time. That you are a good father. That, Lord, you desire. You desire our lives to be good because you are good. And Lord, I just want right now, I'm just going to ask you to do this in, in your seat. I want you to lift up one person that may have a speck in their eye right now in your life. I want you to pray for that person, but I also want you to pray for your own heart towards them. Lord, deal with us. Deal with us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you come before us. Lord, you give us the courage to speak boldly to people, but also the gentleness and the humility to understand that we first were sinners, that you sent Jesus to come die on the cross while we were sinners, not when we had it all together. Lord, you desire us to have it all together, to walk in your ways, because you desire us not to wreck our lives anymore. We know that if any of us have been here where we've wrecked our own lives, we know that that's the power of the gospel, that you forgive us of our sins and that you redeem every aspect of our lives. So we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for that, Jesus. And now we lift up that person right now. Holy Spirit, come with me. We lift up each person, Lord Jesus, people that are far away from you. Lord, some of us, it's our enemies. Like it's, it's literally people in our lives that we can't even stand. I lift up those people. Lord, you call us to love our enemies. Maybe it's people who have said bad things about us and we come with judgmental hearts because we know that they've said bad things about us and we, <laughs> we may not want them to, to receive grace. But you give grace more and more when we don't deserve it. So, Lord, we pray for those people right now. We pray for the people who have said bad things about us right now, Lord Jesus. We pray for family members who are far from God. Lord, don't let us be afraid of that conversation right now, Lord Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be revealing in us what we say to them right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you that you are our champion, Lord, that you are the one that goes before us. We lay down every difficult conversation. We lay down every broken relationship, and we say, it's you, Lord. It's you, Lord. We give it to you. We actually take it off of ourselves. When we put it on ourselves, we mess it up. You choose broken people. And so we lay down our brokenness, and we lay down the people in our lives, and we put you, Jesus, on the throne, and we simply sit, sit at your feet. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.